Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. Today's guest, his bio is too long for me to read the entire thing, but he is both a businessman, a uh, Marine Corps officer uh, in the reserves, a Naval Academy grad, father of four, husband of one, Joey Fay. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, BJ. It's good to it's good to be here. I always have a good time with you, Joey. I, I didn't read the bio because it is super long and the first part of the show we always kind of get to know the guests and it's better to hear it in your words than in me reading the uh resume and the bio talk to us so you know you started out at naval academy you are now running your own business at quatrefoil doing project leadership let's talk about everything in between unless prior to naval academy matters which i'm sure it does but but talk to us about you know where you came from your upbringing how you landed at naval academy and and what your path was to to starting Quatrefoil. All right, that's a that's a lot. So I think I think I I grew up probably like you in in the Rambo era, right? And and I was a Lehigh Valley <laughs> kid, and I I was totally into military stuff. My grandfather, who was my namesake, Richard Joseph Fay. There's there's the first uh, Easter egg in this interview is that my first name is actually Richard. No one knows that. My, I go by my middle name, but Dick Fay, the original, was a Marine World War II veteran. Who fought on the islands, and I never met him, but I I knew I knew about him, and I saw my name on all this stuff. So I wanted to be a marine from the beginning. Had no idea what an officer versus enlisted was, what what leadership meant, why he had to go to college for that. But I was a pretty decent football player. Lehigh Valley football is not too bad, good enough to get you into a nice D two or D three school or D one at Navy or West Point. And uh, my my a guy right ahead of me. Clint Dotson, phenomenal athlete, great dude. He went to West Point and he was a year ahead of me and, and uh, convinced me to do it. So I did naps. I knew that I was on a path to being a Marine. I did. I still didn't totally understand what it meant to be an officer, but I knew that I was going to get to play football in college. I was going to get to go to Notre Dame, uh, that kind of cool stuff. And then at the end of it, they were going to let me uh, try to be a Marine. Naval Academy was great, as you can imagine. Uh, I had a good time there. I had two younger brothers that went on to play football at, at University of Pennsylvania and Kent State. So big football family, still a huge Navy football fan. I'm a, I'm a diehard member of the Brotherhood, which unfortunately gets together uh, every once in a while to mourn the loss of one of our teammates, as, as you're probably familiar with. Um, after Navy, I did get that chance to be a Marine. Um, I, they made me an adjutant, which at the time I didn't know what it was, and it's nothing super sexy. I'm not a I'm not like a recon or a special operations guy, which seems like everybody is these days. Looking back on it, it was sort of a, I fell into a, an opportunity as an adjutant, which is basically sort of like a chief of staff slash legal officer slash admin officer, which meant that I kind of did everything for the infantry battalion, almost in the sense of running it like a business for the CEO, right? So the CEO being in the battalion commander. Um and and so in that sense, I really feel like being an adjutant set me up well for um, the business community that I would enter into in 2009. In the Army, that sounds like the S-1. It is. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Same thing in the Marine Corps. It, it, I would say it's a little different, you know, just because as Marines, we have that mentality that we're all rifle men, right? So 
so we, you know, we are combat adjutants in the sense that I was going out on patrols and not patrols per se, but going to the Iraqi bases in the heart of Fallujah to train their adjutant. Right. And, and I, you know, and yeah. it's funny too. I, if you have time for an anecdote quick. Of course we do. All right. So what's really funny is, you know, my first time outside the wire, I go to uh, the second of the fourth, I believe was the Iraqi battalion, right in the, right in the heart of Fallujah, bad part of town. And it's my first time there. And there's, there's four army cats that are embedded there as, you know, the MIT team, right? Yep. They're all, they're, they're living with the Iraqi battalion. We go there to train. Then we go back to our base. Those guys live there and they've been there for like, you know, maybe a year. And so I'm, I'm brand new. I meet the army S1 captain and I'm a lieutenant. I meet the guy. He's very nice. All of a sudden there's an explosion out in the street, out at the main gate, right? Some, VBIED or something goes off and, and, it, and it, it doesn't really do much damage and we're pretty far away from it. We're deep in the base, but all of a sudden everybody starts shooting. All the Iraqi jindis are just firing in all kinds of directions and uh, it scared me, right? You know, so I hook, I hook her down behind a Humvee and I have my rifle and I'm looking for something to shoot, but there's no targets. There's nothing. They're just shooting into the air. And, he, and this guy, this army captain, I wish I knew who he was. I should have taken his name. He comes, sits down by me and he's like, he's like, First time here, this is called the Iraqi Death Blossom. <laughs> and I said, "What does that mean?" He goes, "Yeah, just, there, there's no enemy out there. Somebody set off a bomb and ran away, and, and these guys are just going to shoot until they get tired of it." And I said, "Wow, that's wild, man." So, so yeah, I'll, it's very similar to your, you know, an Army S one. S one, and and I, I mean, in in my world, the talent level of the S one kind of becomes how how much they end up supporting the battalion commander. So to your point, like the XO or the not, you know, we have we have an XO and an S3 that are kind of the critical leadership roles, but a, a executive support to the battalion command. Yeah, and I don't know if it's like this in the army, but the interesting thing about being the S1 in a, in a battalion is you're the only lieutenant. Every other staff member is a captain or a major. So, you know, it, it puts you right into the fire of executive leadership, you know, right away. All right. So you go from S1. Uh, in a battalion, this is that's that's right out of Naval yeah, right Academy, out of Naval right? Academy. So 2004, 2005. Yep. yep. S one S one at the Infantry Battalion. That was Second Battalion, Seventh Marines. Awesome battalion. Uh, tough deployment. Um, came back from Iraq with them, and then I was assigned to train Marines uh, at boot camp in San Diego. So I became a series commander, oversaw drill instructors. Uh, one of the most amazing amazing things I ever got to do, just because. Witnessing the transformation of, of high school and, and young, young men and women, you know, to becoming Marines. When I became an officer out of the Naval Academy, I understood at that point, okay, we're going to be leaders. You know, these folks are entrusted to us. Our decisions are, are critical, but the fighters are the enlisted. And they're the ones that really put it on the line every day. How do they get so good at what they do? And, and going to boot camp and witnessing that, you know, I learned, I learned that process. After that, I flipped over to the reserves. We had our first daughter in 2008. And in, in 2009, I got out. We moved home to Philly. I joined 3rd Battalion, 14th Marines. And I got my first job as a project manager for Worthing Company, one of the largest non-union mechanical contractors in Pennsylvania, from two Naval Academy guys. So John Marinucci was the COO. And uh, Steve Cantrell, who was a former Naval Academy wrestler, was was the operations director for projects. And uh, they gave me an opportunity to be a project manager there. 
that ultimately led to an opportunity with Penn Medicine as a project manager in-house. That was kind of my first taste of what it meant to be an owner's rep, uh, even though it was an in-house owner's rep. And then uh, working with them and doing two major projects for them, the Trauma Center at Penn Presbyterian Medical Center and 3737 Market, you know, that that sort of told me or, or kind of led me to believe that I could do it on my own. Uh, so I went to CBRE where they, they sort of gave me the opportunity to start a life science and healthcare practice, which I did within their project management group. And I got my MBA at the same time. And uh, I'll say this about the Penn State Smeal Executive MBA. You leave there every day thinking about starting your own business uh, because you just, you just, it inspires you. And so I did some good things with CBRE. And then I went to them and asked if, if they would hate me forever if I went and started my own veteran owned business. And uh, they were very gracious. And I'll never say a bad thing about CBRE. Great culture, great company. And Jim Carter, who was my boss at the time, he said, hey, I hate to lose you, but I know you're going to be successful. And, uh, and when you are, maybe we'll come back and get buy you back. So still hoping that that day comes someday, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so two paths. I don't want to. I don't want to lose sight of that. You you stayed in the reserves. You're now lieutenant colonel in the in the Marine Corps reserves. And what's your role now there? So in the reserves, I went to 314. I was a I was the adjutant for an artillery battalion. So I got to learn, you know, another another Victor unit kind of style how the arty guys work. And I went actually to Morocco with them on a on a peacekeeping mission called uh, African Lion, where we spent 30 days living in the desert and shooting everything under the sun with the Moroccans. I also watched a bunch of 40 plus out of shape Moroccans defeat a bunch of 17 year old and 18 year old in shape Marines in a game of soccer, which was uh, eye opening. <laughs> You're a poster boy for recruiting because that's like literally seeing the world. Yeah. That, but, and that was amazing. It was, it was tough living. I was probably the most Spartan I've ever lived in, in a, in a two man tent in the Western Sahara for 30 days. But it was beautiful, and when you got to go visit the coastline, it was gorgeous. It's funny, we're sitting out there in the desert with Moroccans, Marines, sailors, Army, Navy, and nobody else for miles and miles. And then, a, and then like a VW bus comes over the hill, and it's like three surfers from Australia that heard there was a, a good set rolling in. <laughs> but I went, from, I went from 314 to Mar 4Com in Norfolk, and I was part of the team that helped, I guess, with the big drawdown of troops, especially reserves. So in, in 2011, 2012, you know, the Marine Corps in particular really started taking the reserves off the battlefield. And that was kind of our job was to, was to, fin was to pull all the reservists back and sort of start drawing back on the budget for OIF and OEF. Did that for a few years. And then I moved on to the JEC, which is where I currently or where I just left. And the JEC was a really cool unit, Joint Enabling Capabilities Command, all about planning, all about processes all about supporting combatant commanders around the world with major issues. Our team was on the front lines in um, Afghanistan during the, the withdrawal. They, they were there for that disaster on the airstrip. They helped try to turn that into something good. I got to do a big mission with the unaccompanied minors in San Diego with NORTHCOM, supporting you know what to do with all these young boys and girls that are coming across the border alone, and how can the DOD support that. That was a really great opportunity, and I took a lot of things out of that unit uh, out of the JEC and their planning processes. And I applied those to what we do at Quatrefoil and the planning processes we use for capital projects. And it was really, really useful. And now I'm in my possibly final unit as a lieutenant colonel, getting close to that 20. 
it's within sight. And I'm I am the I'm the emergency response officer for the Marine Corps for FEMA's Region Three, which is Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, and West Virginia. Oh right? yeah, yeah, Virginia and West. Virginia. Yeah, because you have Norfolk. Yeah. You do have Norfolk couple of things because we have a lot of transitioning veterans that listen to the podcast contemplating the construction industry contemplating their next steps you and i both shared the path of getting off active duty but remaining in the reserves some myths out there about the reserves i think that reservists when i was on active duty would get a bad rep for being you know part-time soldier i think that it's important to highlight that those part-time soldiers have full-time jobs. Some of them are business owners doing project management in complicated facilities like you. So you're bringing, you're kind of, you've got this hybrid career that you're bringing to the fight. So anybody that's getting off active duty, contemplating the reserve, don't allow your stereotypes or predispositions to reservists uh, scare you away from that. It's, there's some of the most talented people I've ever met serving in uniform as a way to keep their foot in that service category while exploring a different career path. Joey, any comments on that? Yeah, I, I would say I totally agree. And I, and no doubt there's a difference. You know, when I got to my very first, and I, I went straight from active duty, and a week later I was in a reserve unit. And yes, haircuts are a little shaggier, uniforms aren't as tight. And and it was... A, it was PT, PT might not be as strong. Yeah, and I came straight from the drill field where, like, it's insane, right? Like, drill instructors yeah. are... Drill instructors are high into the right and the reserves are low into the left. Right. And I went from, from A to B in, in the course of a week, but I, I got to the point where I was like, you know what, if you can't beat them, join them, you know, we're all here. We know that when, when it's, when it's guns up and when it's time to serve that we'll be there and we're going to be proficient. And I think it's, I think the reserves is, is an awesome thing to do. And I would say it was huge for me starting my own company to have the TRICARE benefits and to have that reserve thing under my belt. And to know that if I failed or if I had a problem or if I lost a job, you know, that there were opportunities all over the world. Right now, I could I could log in and say, hey, where do you need a Marine around the world? Yeah. And I could go get a paycheck, you know, for six months, maybe a year, maybe even three. Yeah, safety net. That that brings me to Quatrefoil. Give us the elevator pitch on who Quatrefoil is, and then I want to talk about how you ended up starting your own company. Yeah, so Quatrefoil Consulting is a, I call it a project leadership firm. We are leadership consultants before anything, because um, at the end of the day, any project or any challenge or any obstacle really needs good leadership to, to overcome it. So we, we say that you point us, put us at the point and we will uh, build a team and build a mission and plan it out and succeed. The Quatrefoil is based on the, the logo that's on a Marine officer's cover. It used to be back in the day when Marines were on on the ship tops and there was a battle going on down below the guy up there had to find the leader, you know? And so he would look down and he'd look for the quadruple on top of the cover. And so as at quadruple, we like to tell our clients, you know, if you've got a challenge, you've got something difficult and you're looking for a leader, find the quadruple, put us in charge and we'll get it done. It's awesome. Uh, not unlike, and this may be just engineers, officers kind of massaging themselves in the, in the army, but battalion commander, brigade commander has a problem on his desk. He's looking for the engineer castle on what used to be on the collar to to figure it out and think through it with him. So yeah. to our listeners, Quatrefoil and MCFA share a lot of the same values, a lot of the same uh, services and core offerings and belief that leadership is what makes a difference on a project. Joey's markets are a little different based on his you know kind of life science healthcare background. I think that's how he got started coming out of CBRE. So talk to us about 
you know, that, that leap from no client to first client and, and, you know, taking your foot out of, out of CBRE and out on your own. Yeah. So I think, I think a lot of credit is owed to Kevin, who's the current CEO of uh, Penn Medicine. When, when I, I actually went on that Morocco deployment as a reservist and, and I came home and my mother-in-law, who was an executive at, at HUP at the hospital of Uni- university of Pennsylvania had passed away. And I met Kevin mm. at her funeral and dealing with, you know, my wife going through that process. And he said to me, Hey, are you, uh, what are you doing? I said, well, I, I just got done with a reserve deployment and I'm going back to Worth and company. You know, I don't know what's next for me. And he said, well, if you can lead Marines, you can lead uh, a project. And his son actually is a West Point graduate. He's doing really great things in the army. I, you know, I liken it to the old saying, you know, if you could dodge a wrench, you could dodge a ball. And he's <laughs> the one that put that in my head. And, and he said, hey, here's a $250 million trauma center that we're about to do. I'd like you to put you in charge of it. And I'm not going to say I did a perfect job. And if anybody ever asked him, he'll probably say I didn't do a perfect job. But I learned a lot and I learned that it can be done. And that's what got me into the healthcare. But once you have a big project in the healthcare world under your belt like that, you become a real powerful asset in the healthcare life science industry, which is why I went that direction at CBRE. After CBRE, I went up against a couple of people, fought for some projects with Wexford Science and Technology, with Doylestown Hospital, and landed those clients. And that's what really solidified us as a healthcare and life science project leadership company. Since then, we've pivoted into some other markets, which have you know just come at us through word of mouth and through networking. Um, but we really do try to maintain the fact that we are specialists at the healthcare and life science uh, type of project. I think the the thing I want to highlight there, and and it's come across in in a lot of interviews, is that you know you said you didn't do a perfect job, but you weren't afraid to take the risk and get uncomfortable and take it on. And you know it's it's a two sided equation because you weren't you weren't afraid to say yes. What was the gentleman's name? Kevin Mahoney. Kevin Mahoney. So you weren't afraid to say yes. And he believed in you to a degree that gave you a shot. And I think that is, that's like the magic potion. So anybody that's transitioning, go find somebody that's going to believe in you, somebody that's going to give you a chance, not somebody that thinks you're perfect, not somebody that thinks you're not going to make any mistakes because every good leader knows that the only way people grow is to give them enough support uh, that they can that they can go grow, but enough leash that they can go make mistakes on their own and and find their way. And I think that's I think that's important for anybody transitioning. I think that's an important leadership lesson for anybody that's that's you know representing them or or is in a leadership role to allow people to to make mistakes. The other thing I would say for transitioning veterans getting out is that you should immediately engage your community when you get back home or wherever you're going. Because I can't tell you the number of leads on projects, uh, clients, and things that I got just from coaching Little League or being on the planning commission or going to trivia night at the firehouse, whatever it is. You know, when you engage your community, people want, want veterans in their community. They like veterans in their community. Uh, and, and so once you're involved in those kinds of things, sometimes the leads just start falling out of the sky on jobs. I mean, I got my first job because I volunteered for a congressman that was running for office. And you're in a room full of people that you don't know, but you start talking to them and then it leads to things, you know? So I'll, I'll tap onto that. Engaging community also is one of those areas that I think translates to service. And I think that a lot of veterans, 
when they transition, they go and and well, I'll call it trade time for money. They they get a job and they feel like I got my job. That just filled one of like I don't know five to ten blocks that you need to check when you transition because what you miss is not just the paycheck when you transition, but it's the camaraderie, it's the team, it's the sense of mission, it's the sense of service. There's a whole host of things. So we we get trained to think, I just need to replace my income, but there's so much more that you need to replace and getting involved in your community and finding ways to give back, I think is is the one thing that you know replaces wearing that uniform every day. Absolutely. And in fact, I sat on a panel talking to companies who want to hire transitioning veterans. And they said, what, what do veterans need at, at our companies when they join us? And I, and I said, look, what they don't need is some psychologist that they can go sit down and, and have a hug session with. What's a good idea would be for your organization as a company to tie into some service outfit and tell your employees, in particular your veterans, that, hey, of your 40-hour work week, we want you to put two hours towards this service entity. And, and, you know, use our time and use our money to go do something like that. That kind of service, you know, that, that can't always replace exactly what we had as active duty veterans, but it can get close enough to help your, help your life be pointed in the right direction. So on, on that topic, I know you're heavily involved in the Travis Mannion Foundation and you've started your own uh, nonprofit fund. I forget the name of it. Fire in the hole. Second knock. Oh, oh, fire in oh, the hole. oh, yeah. The knock at the door fund. That's the fun. Yeah, yeah. And fire in the hole is the uh, golf outing. That's the golf outing that raises money for it. Yeah. And if you're watching this on video, there's a hat behind me. Fire in the hole. Yeah, yeah. So fire. Up there. Fire in the hole is we had that the first fire in the hole outing was this year. Uh, we raised about twenty thousand dollars, which we gave to a bunch of veterans' families and and for one police officer as well. I think. You know, like you were saying, the Travis Mania Foundation really was the place I went to to serve when I was getting out. Mentoring young people, character, integrity, leadership, some stuff that some of them aren't getting in anywhere else these days really allowed me to, one, talk about the guys that I want to remember, and two, make sure I felt like I was, I was serving in a, a higher purpose. So I agree with you 100%. And Travis Mania was the way that I did it. And now we're going a step further by trying to create our own fund to be the second knock at the door. You know, that's, that's where we're heading with the fire and the whole golf outing. Awesome. Second part of this, you know, that was kind of the getting to know you. Second part is you played football at Naval Academy. You've been an athlete in, in team environments. You've been a Marine in combat environments. You've been in the business world. Talk to us about, you know, leadership lessons that have served you well throughout your you know, your career and your life. Leadership lessons that served me well. So when I, t- when I think about leadership lessons that that sort of transitioned over to my business career. One of the things I think about right away is, is that um, bad news doesn't age well. Mm. And it's the kind of thing where if you do have a bad, if you do have a bad call or if you do have bad news to share, don't wait, share it with everybody that needs to know it. Um, General Mattis or, you know, some, some Marine used to have this saying that, what do I know? Who needs to know it? And have I told them now? I remember that, as a football player at Navy, the bad news about us from 2000 to 2002 was that we were bad. And, and nobody wanted to say, it. you know, everybody was sunshine and rainbows. Hey, we just got to work harder. We only lost by a field goal. We only lost by one point, you know, but we were bad. And I remember when Paul Johnson came and took over that team. And, and Paul Johnson is not a nice man. 
Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations, Paul, for making it to the Hall of Fame. And if you listen to this, I'm sorry, but you, you could be a really tough SOB, right? But he showed up and he, and he said to us, guys, you're, you're bad. You stink. But that's the first thing we need to admit to start getting better. And, and as BJ knows, uh, after my senior year, <laughs> Navy got a lot better. Um, but I didn't learn that lesson right away. But I, I think back to that when I had my first project, the one that Kevin gave me, you know, we, we, were, we were getting in trouble. Like we were finding Penn Presbyterian Medical Center is an old building. We were finding things behind walls that shouldn't be there, stuff that people hid and buried in concrete. And, and now it's our problem. And that wasn't budgeted. And, and those things were, were difficult. And I think your natural tendency is to say, okay, let's, let's first find a way to solve this. Or maybe it's not that bad. Or maybe there's a way around this problem. But if, that, if that's not the case and you can't find a way around it and that problem stews and festers, you know, then a, then a little problem becomes a, a medium-sized problem. And then a medium-sized problem becomes a big problem. And the further down the road it goes, it can get very, very nasty. My, my advice or leadership thing that I learned, you know, from the, from the gridiron at Navy was, was, Hey, if you got some bad news, just admit it and start working on how to solve it, but make sure everyone knows, pass the word and make sure everybody's a part of the solution. Cause there might be someone out there that actually knows a way to fix it. And, and they can't do that unless you, you make sure that they're aware of it. Awesome. So Joe, Joey talking about that bad news doesn't age well, reminds me of the Stockdale paradox. Jim Collins talks about it in good to great. And it essentially is that you must maintain unwavering faith that you can and will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties, while at the same time have the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. That's from Admiral Stockdale, uh, another hundred percent shot to Navy. And, 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 you know, I just, I just saw the, the, the three, I was just at the Naval Academy, three guys that wrote Defiance who are all, you know, roommates of Stockdale's at Hanoi Hilton. Yeah. They talked about that paradox and they talked about their challenges there and how it was very hard to admit, you know, the first guy, the first guy that was ever there, he broke right away. You know, and he, and he told more than he should have told right away. And when the second guy ar arrived, he was too scared to even talk to him or communicate with him because he didn't want to admit what he had done. But when he did, the other guy said, I did too, you know? So, um, <laughs> You know, they said, look, now, now let's move on from there, you know. Any other leadership lessons you want to highlight for the audience? Yeah, so I think, I think the one thing I really love about being a football player and team sports in general is, is that, you know, no, you, have to, you, know, you have to know your job, right? Um, when I got to my first battalion, my battalion commander sit, lined up all the officers and said, listen, I don't want a bunch of people that can just run three miles in 15 minutes. I want about 10 guys that can run three miles in 15 minutes. And I want a couple guys that run it in 25, but they can carry a ton of stuff while they do it. You know, and he said, I don't want a track team. I want a football team. I want people that can do all kinds of things because not nobody can do everything. And I think that's really critical to know. And as a leader now, when we build teams for our projects at Quattrofoil, I'm always saying to myself, who's not here? Who's not sitting at this table with me as I'm building this team? I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm bad at. You know, we're, we're doing a project with, with Liberty Hill right now with the Union League and, I, and we're looking at different athletic facilities and I looked around the room and I thought to myself, there's no one here that does anything with rackets. There's no one here that knows anything about tennis or pickleball or padel or any of the other trendy racket sports, you know, going on right now. Maybe we ought to have somebody in this room that knows that. So 
just like having a football team versus a track team, nothing against track. Track's a great sport. I like to say, who's on your team? Do you have all your bases covered? Make sure that, that the stuff that you're not good at, your blind spots are covered by someone else. MCFA, core value, teamwork makes the dream work. I'm currently reading this book, Six Types of Working Genius by Patrick Lencioni. It's his latest book, which talks about just that. Like We can't all be great at everything. We're probably genius at two, average at two, and absolutely soul-sucking at the other two. And in his six types of working genius. Couldn't agree more. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service disabled, veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Switching to some, and, and maybe we stick on books. Uh, some rapid fire questions for you. We talked about community involvement, Travis Manion Foundation, Fire in the Hole uh, event. Anything else? You're, and and your your coaching with all your kids' sports. Anything else in the community or or current events that you're you're passionate about and involved in? Definitely youth sports. That's that's probably something I spend too much time on. But my four daughters all play sports, and I'm and I'm heavily engaged in, in watching them grow and become teammates themselves. But I do think that that's, I think the field of play is one of the greatest places. Um, you, you said, you mentioned a quote to me that I had not heard before. I think it's a, it's a West Point thing, but the fields of <laughs> fields of friendly strife. And, and I feel like that's such a great mantra. And that's why I love youth sports so much. I do think, you know, it's challenging these days where parents getting a little serious um, and paying thousands of dollars for clubs and trainers and stuff when kids are eight, yeah. eight, nine, ten years old. But I would say I try my best to just make sure that everyone enjoys it and wants to continue it because nothing really matters until you get to the point where those those um, those character traits that you're learning are really put to use in high school, college, and then beyond. You know, the the uh, I'm th- reading a book. I can't think of the guy's name that wrote it. Do hard things, and he wrote an article. I'll I'll actually put it in the show notes because we're on the topic. I coached. My son, I didn't, I played high school freshman football, but that was about it. Uh, but I coached my son's peewee football team, five and six year olds. I probably learned more than they did this season going through that. But the article, the punchline of the article was don't be so oversteering of your child's athletic career. The two, the two things you should ask them after every practice, after every game are, did you have fun and did you work hard? Because that's that's really what it's all about. Because if you're not having fun, you're not going to keep doing it. And if you're not working hard, you're not getting better at it. Yeah. Uh, so on the topic of books, any must-read books in your library? So I would say there's 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 two that come right off the top of my head that uh, one I read a while ago and one I just finished. The one I read a while ago was is called The L Factor. It's the likability factor. It's a book by Tim Sanders. I think you and I have both benefited from this, and that's the fact that. If all things are considered equal, you're going to work with the person you like. And if all things are not equal, you're probably still going to work with the person you like. <laughs> so if, if people like you, you're going to have more opportunity. And I know that we all do those. Um, what, what are those things where you, you figure out what your, your own personal character traits are? Personality tests. Yeah, strengths, weaknesses, uh, Myers-Briggs. My, yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. So when you do that, if you if you're coming out abrasive and mean and angry and uh curmudgeoned, you know, you might want to consider 
you know, reading this book and, and understanding certain ways, you know, to be, to be likable because likability is just such a powerful character trait. And then the other one is Neptune's Inferno. So I love reading military books and just learning about trials and tribulations of, of our, you know, of our ancestors. And Neptune's Inferno was about the battle on the sea that the Navy fought outside of Guadalcanal. Probably one of the most eye-opening books I've ever read about how brutal naval warfare was back then. And, mm-hmm. and just thinking about the tragedies that other people did. And, and I read these kind of books um, to kind of just remind myself how lucky we are. You know, when, when my wife and I are upset about the cost of the shades that we want to get, or, you know, <laughs> if, uh, if we get a flat tire in the morning and we're all upset, like these kind of books kind of bring you back to the fact that people have endured really, really incredible things. And we're all blessed to just kind of be here and enjoying life, even on bad days. Amen. Favorite quote? Favorite quote is this too shall pass. All right. Similar mantra, which is... Uh, very similar. It, it's it's similar mantra to uh, bad news doesn't age well, too. Yeah, yeah. This too shall pass. I mean, look, at, uh, I have a 14-year-old now, and... Uh, <laughs> And everybody's telling me this too shall pass. In case anybody didn't catch, he has four girls. Four girls. Four daughters. And, and the oldest is 14. 14, yeah. 14 is the oldest. I'm, I'm going to throw some curveballs at you because I'm, I'm introducing new questions that, that aren't on the pre-read. Okay. The kindest thing anybody has ever done for you. Wow. All right. I would have to say in, in March of 2020, my dad was one of the very early COVID cases. Actually, he was, uh, he was, nobody even knew he had COVID. He was just tired. And luckily my kid brother knew the whole uh, Coca-Cola taste test thing, which was like just, just starting to blossom. Mm. Right. So he went to my dad's house and said, Hey dad, you've been in bed for two days. Like this isn't right. Try this Coke. I've been hearing about COVID and, and your taste buds and stuff. And he said, yeah, this Coke doesn't taste right. Took him right to the hospital. Within a week, he was in the ICU. Within another week, he was on the ventilator. And at that time, very early in COVID, for a 65-year-old man to be on the ventilator, they were basically telling us, he's going to die. And we went to our friends and family in the Lehigh Valley, and my brothers and I, and we basically said, look, we need some help. We don't know what it is, but you know, help us out here. And I think, I think in about 18 days, we had $35,000 and I don't even, I don't even know why it was money. We had, we had food, we had cookies, we had things coming in. Uh, people were helping my helping renovate his house so that if he came home, things would be easier for him to deal with. Um, and, and I don't know why all that love and support came to us, but I do think it translated to him after several weeks on a ventilator and after us putting together wills and powers of attorney, thinking that he was going to die, all of a sudden getting a phone call that, hey, he's off the vent and he's going to recover. And we don't know how or why, but it's going to happen. And um, when that guy got back to the house and all those people that had supported him and, and put that together, it was, um, it was really, really a phenomenal feeling to understand how a community can come together for something. So. That's awesome. I love that. I like where he went with it. I, the first time I'm asking that question, I, a buddy of mine just said that he heard it on another podcast, and I, I think it's a powerful question to make us to, to do what you just did, which is quickly reflect and like think, you know, it's not a question you think about often. 
And then we changed this question. It used to be dead or alive. If you could have, if you could spend time with three people for a day, who would they be? What would you do? I'm changing it to make it easier. Three people dead or alive. If you could have them around a dinner table, who would they be? Okay. Three people dead or alive around a dinner table. Um, I think Chris Farley would be one. <laughs> I mean, who didn't love that guy? He was just so funny. And and unfortunately, my girls are not going to have the chance to see anything except the old movies that he made. Um, but I think I think Chris Farley. Classics. Classics. My grandfather. I think it would be really cool to, to sit and talk to him about my time as a Marine, carrying his name, his time as a Marine. Never got to meet him. I think it would be really neat to just sit and chat about uh, about what it what it meant to be a Marine in World War II and what it meant to be a Marine in in the war against terror. And then I think the last one would probably be probably be my mother in law, Mary Ellen Riley. She passed away too early. I I got lucky with her having a, having such a wonderful mother in law, and she died at fifty eight. Right as I was, um, you know, just getting out of the Marine Corps and just starting to spend time at home again, I do feel like we were very fortunate that I chose to get out and move home when we did, so that my wife at least got to spend a few years with her before that tragedy. I want more time with her. I want to pick her brain more. She was such a successful woman at a time when women weren't, um, you know, didn't have the same opportunities. Right. So to be a 58 year old woman who's an executive at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania back in, in the early 2000s was um, it was a it was a feat. And I, I just kind of think that she'd be someone I'd like to spend more time with. And yeah. after we have all those serious conversations, we'll, we'll get Chris to stand up and do uh, do something funny. <laughs> Close us out with what what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want on your tombstone? I think that the number one thing would just be that my girls um you know say that i was i was a good dad number one thing was good dad i would say good dad um marine officer maybe football player and and everything else be, behind that is uh that's kind of all i really need oh no it's good dad and I'm, and I'm happy that i achieved those other goals if it said former president of the united states i wouldn't be upset with that <laughs> You heard it here first, everybody. <laughs> Fay Day is coming. Yes, Fay Day. All right, Joe. Uh, the audience is yours. Close us out in the words of Andy Reid in honor of the Super Bowl coming up this weekend. Time stamp this. The time is yours. All right. I think, uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for, for hosting this. Thanks for doing this podcast. It's cool. I like listening to them, and I'll, and I'll, be, I'll be excited to pass this around to people. Uh, just just by capturing this here, you know, it's a little bit of something that uh, my family and everyone gets to hold on to. So I appreciate you doing this. I would say that this weekend is going to be a birdbath. We are going to be swimming in victory. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I watched the last one with my family. So my wife's family uh, is on tap for this weekend. We're going to be together hanging out in Doylestown. We're not so lucky to be at the game like some people I know. Um, but I think it's going to be it's going to be awesome. Just to close out, I would say this: do the right thing, man. Everybody, just do the right thing. It's it's not the easy thing. I sent I sent a text to my daughter this morning. She didn't want to go to lacrosse practice because the last practice she ran and she had she's tired and sore. And I said, "Honey, you know the the hard thing is typically the right thing, and that's unfortunate, but that is what it is. And and if you always avoid it, 
you're not, you're not going to be on the right path. So if we could all just find, find it in us to do the right thing, this world will kind of be a better place. Joey Fay, you are making the world a better place. Thanks for being on, brother. And uh, go birds. Go birds. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.